0: The sun hadn't even risen yet when they made their amphibious landing. For the most part, they were silent. With the exception of a few whispered prayers, the young men awaited their fate engaged in pensive thought. It was their first taste of war, after all, and they didn't know what to expect. Most had enlisted to fight for the king as well as the empire. They felt it was their duty to protect both their homelands and the commonwealth as a whole, but little did they suspect that the campaign of which they were to be a part would prove to be one of the biggest military blunders in history. Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, or ANZAC as it's more commonly known, landed on the shores of Gallipoli at the mouth of the Turkish Straits on that chilly spring morning, they had been led to believe that defeat of Ottoman forces was essentially assured, that, as was the plan, the Allies would push all the way to Constantinople, allowing Allied ships into warm water ports in the Black Sea, while simultaneously driving the enemy out of the war. What awaited them, however, were entirely different circumstances, ones that would ultimately cost them over 11,000 lives. Though by no means an easy experience, let's hop into one of these landing craft and experience firsthand what it was like to be an Anzac soldier at Gallipoli, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The event that single-handedly triggered the outbreak of World War I was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand while he was away to inspect the Austro-Hungarian Imperial Armed Forces in the city of Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. While there on June 28, 1914, three members of a Serbian nationalist group known as the Black Hand had planted themselves in strategic locations along the Archduke's motorcade. The first ultimately chickened out. The second missed. The third, a 19-year-old Serb named Gavrilo Princip, fired his rounds into the dignitary's motor car, killing him along with his wife, Archduchess Sophie, who had been seated beside him. This single event triggered a domino effect that swept throughout Eastern and Central Europe, with the Austro-Hungarian Empire declaring war on Serbia exactly one month later, Russia rallying its own troops in support of Serbia a few days after that, Germany declaring war on both Russia and France in the opening days of August, and, following the German invasion of neutral Belgium on August 4th, Britain's declaration of war against Germany. Seven years prior, in 1907, Britain, France, and Russia had formed an alliance known as the Triple Entente, and incidentally, it was these three nations who would make up the crooks of the Allies in the conflict. As Britain had many overseas territories and holdings at the time, this meant that those throughout the empire were expected to answer the call to war. Though independent for 13 years by the time the Great War, as it was then called, broke out, Australia was one of the former British possessions that rose to the occasion, offering up some 400,000 young men to join the fight. Of these, some 25,000 from both Australia and New Zealand were consolidated into a single force known as the Australian and New Zealander Army Corps, or ANZAC for short, in the early days of 1915. Based in Egypt, they were mobilizing in response to the Ottoman Empire's entry into the conflict, when the latter had carried out a surprise attack on Russia's Black Sea coast on October 29, 1914, and soon after, joined the war on the side of Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the three countries of which were collectively known as the Central Powers the events leading up to the gallipoli campaign began on february 17, nineteen fifteen when a british seaplane the hms Ark royal flew a reconnaissance mission over the turkish straits two days later on february nineteenth the first attack began on the region known as the dardanelles a combined british and french task force backed by the artillery of the british ship hms queen elizabeth launched a long-range bombardment of ottoman artillery batteries along the coast Inclement weather, though not uncommon to the area, postponed further bombardments, but on February 25th, the combined Allied force had laid the Turkish forts to waste and cleared the entrance of the Straits of All Mines. From there, the objective was to push all the way up to the Sea of Marmara and lay siege to Istanbul, the largest and most strategically important city in Turkey, to clear the way to the Black Sea to provide the Russians with supplies. But Ottoman batteries on land threatened to slow the Allies' progress up the Straits. Frustrated by these developments, the British First Lord of the Admiralty, A young lion, who you may know as Winston Churchill, pressured Admiral Sackville Cardin, the naval commander of this operation, to hunker down and double the fleet's efforts. By March 4th, so confident was Cardin in the Allies' progress that he sent a cable to Churchill, assuring him that they would arrive in Istanbul within two weeks. Adding to this sense of impending victory was a German telegram that had been intercepted by British forces, stating that the Turkish forts along the Dardanelles were running low on ammunition. After careful planning and coordination, Cardin planned the main attack for March 17th, but was soon suffering from stress and relieved of his duties by a medical officer. Thus, the responsibility of carrying out the attack fell upon Admiral John de Robeck's shoulders, an officer in the Royal Navy. On the morning of March 18th, Turkish forces awoke to an incredible sight. A large Allied fleet comprised of 18 battleships and an armada of cruisers, destroyers, and minesweepers attacked the narrowest points of the straits, which are only about a mile, or 1.6 kilometers, wide. Though the attack had started out smoothly, at least from the Allies' perspective, by 2 p.m. local time that day, it was clear that they were losing the fight as the minesweepers were under heavy enemy fire two battleships one french and the other british were sunk when they hit stray mines several other ships were heavily damaged as a result of hitting mines and many crewmen lost their lives this caused the allies to reassess their attempt at taking the straits to which they arrived at the conclusion that it would be best and perhaps less risky to take them by land the gallipoli campaign was set in motion following these disastrous naval bombardments british french australian and new zealander troops were organized to wipe out the ottoman mobile artillery herbert kitchener a lord as well as the british secretary of state for war at the time appointed one general sir ian hamilton in charge of the seventy-eight thousand soldiers of the british mediterranean expeditionary force or mef for short Meanwhile, the Australian Imperial Force, AIF, and the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, NZEF, there's a lot of acronyms here, were consolidated into the Australian and New Zealander Army Corps, better and more famously known by yet another acronym, the ANZACs, and were sent to Egypt for training before being sent to France. They were to be commanded by Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood of the British Army. The ANZACs were to be joined by the regular 29th Division, as well as the Royal Naval Division, both British outfits. In addition, the French Corps Expeditionnaire d'Orient, or the Expeditionary Corps of the East, was placed under Sir Ian Hamilton's command. In the meantime, the aforementioned British and French divisions were sent to Egypt to link up with their ANZAC comrades. Over the ensuing month, Hamilton prepared and finalized his plan of attack. His objective was to focus on the southern part of the Gallipoli Peninsula, at Cape Hellas and Sedulbahir, two rocky headlands that, at the time, stood unopposed. But Hamilton's hubris, as well as the Allies' overall discrediting of the Ottomans' fighting ability, practically assured him from the start that such a campaign would be easily won. So confident were the Allies of the Turks' lack of military prowess that they even circulated pamphlets among their troops as the latter were stationed in Egypt. This naive notion stemmed from the Turks' relatively poor performance in Libya during the Italo-Turkish War, 3 four years prior, as well as the Balkan Wars two to three years before. This, combined with the supposed decline of the Ottoman Empire at the time, gave the Allies so much confidence that they didn't even bother to gain intelligence prior to the campaign, choosing instead to rely on information drawn from travel guides. Little did they suspect that this would prove to be a large, costly mistake, not just in the monetary sense, but in regards to human lives. As the Allies prepared for the landing at Gallipoli, the Turks mobilized into defensive positions on both sides of the strait. Six divisions of the Ottoman army were set to defend it, the senior officers of whom were actually German. In the days leading up to the campaign, Turkish commanders met with these German officers to discuss the best means of defending the peninsula. After much consideration, they concluded, like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Revenge of the Sith, that holding the high ground on the peninsula's ridges was the best option. How do you say I have the high ground in Turkish? Anyway, there was some debate, however, as to where the Allies would land. In a brilliant demonstration of foresight based upon his missions against the Bulgarians during the Balkan Wars a few years earlier, Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal, who would go on to become the first president of the newly established Republic of Turkey in 1923, predicted that the enemy would land at Cape Hellas on the southern end of the peninsula planning accordingly his division the nineteenth along with the ninth division were stationed along the country's aegean sea coast as well as at cape Hellas. two other divisions were stationed in the town of Boulayir on the northern end of the peninsula it took the british and those under their command including the anzacs some four weeks to coordinate the landings at gallipoli allowing the turks and their german officers more time to prepare their defences general otto liman von sanders the german adviser to the ottoman empire at the time later recalled that this respite just sufficed for the most indispensable measures to be taken Unquote. In short, they would be ready when the enemy made their landing. A small ferry service of boats used to carry troops and supplies across the narrows was organized, as were the construction of makeshift roads, the improvisation of mines fashioned out of torpedo warheads, and the barbed wiring of several miles of beaches and coastline. Trenches were dug ahead of time, and troops were sent on marches to stay fit and active as well as to avoid lethargy. By early April, just days before the Allied landing, The Turks had assembled the Ottoman Aviation Squadron with help from the Germans, whose job it was to fly reconnaissance missions and keep a close watch on the British naval advance. An airfield was the finishing touch. By the middle of the month, they were ready. So, what happened next? Tune in next Thursday to find out in the second part of this two-episode segment of the Gallipoli Campaign, right here on the History Loves Company podcast. If you enjoyed this first part and are eager to learn more, please consider supporting me monthly. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you'll find a support button. Click it and you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget or monetary situation. You can find my podcast on all streaming platforms, so please make sure to give this and all my previous episodes a listen, as that helps as well. Have a great weekend, everyone, and thank you so much for listening. See you next week.